Hello and welcome to the WPAOG Network Podcast. This episode features an interview with retired Brigadier General Rebecca S. Alstead, founder and CEO of Steadfast Leadership, a leading consultancy company she founded after serving for 27 years in the Army. Becky specializes in inspirational and motivational speaking, developing leader training programs, leader coaching, and mentoring. BG Halstead has provided hundreds of keynote speeches and leadership training to the corporate and academic sectors at both national and international engagements. She entered West Point in 1977 with just the second class of women and was the first person from her hometown to graduate from the academy. In 2004, she was the first female graduate of West Point to be promoted to general officer. B.G. Halstead served and commanded in combat as the first female commanding general at the strategic level of leadership in Iraq. In 2007, she received the National Women's History Project Award for generations of women moving history forward. In the spring of 2022, B.G. Halstead was recognized by WPAOG for her exceptional service with the Distinguished Graduate Award. In this episode of the WPAOG Network podcast, B.G. Halstead talks about how she enjoys being a leader and why she sees herself as a role model for both men and women. She explains how her time at West Point and in the military provided her with the many important skills and experiences that are transferable to the work she does today, advising businesses on how to be better. B.G. Halstead also gives insight on some of her proudest moments in the military and why it is important to be an honest, open, and direct mentor to help others succeed in the military and life thereafter. Now, please enjoy this interview between retired Brigadier General Rebecca S. Halstead and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to the West Point AOG Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ian Faison. Today, we're joined by Rebecca Halstead, class of 1981. Becky, how are you? I'm great. How are you today? I'm doing great. Excited to have you in the show. Uh, Today, we're going to chat about uh, West Point, obviously, we're going to talk about your military service, uh, your post-military career, what you've been doing, steadfast leadership. Uh, you wrote a book and everything in between. So starting off, tell us about your current company and what you're doing. So after you know serving in the military for 27 years, the highlight of being in the military was leading. And so when I retired, I thought, well, too young to stop working. What do I want to do? And I thought, what did I love doing most in the military? And that was leading teams. So I decided that's what I wanted to do is continue in the leader development arena. And so I started speaking on leadership in the corporate sector. And it's kind of just grown from there since 2010. It's been a lot of fun, a lot of companies, a lot of interface with the corporate sector at some really challenging times. Yeah, indeed. You got out right as I was graduating from West Point. You know, I can tell you that uh, the past, what, 10, 12, uh, 13 years have been uh, crazy in my life, but they've been crazy for the world. And obviously, you know, the last two, especially challenging and especially uh, difficult. So we'll get into a lot of those leadership lessons later on the show. I'm curious, going in the way back machine, why the heck did you decide to go to a little school on the S curve up in West Point? Actually, it was not my intention. I thought I would go off to college and be a physical education teacher and coach women's sports. That's what I was most excited about in high school. But in 1976, my mom uh, read in the local newspaper about 
the fact that the president of the United States had said, no, we're going to let women attend military academies. So my mom was sitting on the couch reading me the newspaper article, and she says, this sounds just like you. And I kind of looked around the room, and there was no other you in the room but me. My sisters weren't there. My brother wasn't there. And I'm like, what do you mean? So she read all about the academies to me, and she said, I think this sounds like you. I think you need to try. And so she was the one who encouraged me to look into the process. And so that's what I did. I never expected to get accepted into any of the academies. I did visit the Naval Academy. I visited the Coast Guard Academy. I had a friend that went to the Air Force Academy and the Merchant Marine Academy. I did not know anybody that had graduated from West Point, no military in my family. But when I went to West Point and visited, I was like, if I'm going to go to one of these academies, I want it to be West Point. I knew that from the beginning of the process. And so that's what I asked for. And in my senior year, I got accepted, which I will be very candid. That was a big surprise to me. I really never expected to get accepted ever. But when I did, I couldn't say no, because so many kids want to go and are trying to go. And then they get told no. So I was like, no, I'm in. I'm going to go. I hear you. That's how uh, my uncle would say all the time. You can always back out. You know, he's like, give it a month, Right. give it two months. That's how they get you. What type of cadet were you at West Point? What type of experience did you have there? I struggled, certainly academically. No lie there. Matter of fact, I'm at West Point today and I was at West Point last week and I was talking to the cadets, shaking their hands. And I was talking specifically to the brigade staff and several of them, you know, have stars, top 5% on their collar. And I touched one of them and I said, my roommate was a star student, top 5%. It took me 20 years to get my star. So I definitely struggled academically. I was a huge athlete as a kid at home in my high school. But when you grow up from a town with no traffic lights, pretty much can be on any team you enter. There's not much selection there. So I actually thought I was an athlete till I went to West Point and found myself, uh, instead of playing sports, being a manager on several teams, I wasn't even a really great athlete either. My mother always said I was kind of good at everything and not great at any one thing. And so I think that helped me get through West Point because I had enough grit to stay above the line, you know, to pass the test. But it was much more difficult than I thought it was going to be physically, emotionally, academically. But that's not a bad thing because being challenged is good for you. Were there any mentors that you had from your time, either in the academy or or after getting out, that had a big impact on you? Well, I don't think I knew they were mentors at the time. I don't think I really understood mentorship when I was a cadet. But I will definitely tell you that uh, the superintendent was General Goodpaster. And I just remember him being such a quiet professional. He talked to us like adults He treated us like adults. And I could see that he had quite a burden of responsibility because he was asked to come back on active duty to be the superintendent and to be in charge of the integration of women into the academy. I think I realized more now than I did then, in reality, what a sacrifice that was because I know a lot of retired four stars and I don't know that all of them would have said, sure, I'd be happy to come back on active duty for part of my pay and be a three-star and take on uh, this political uh, hornet's nest. So he did it with such grace, and we loved him. He was our superintendent all four years. I happened to have a dedicated room at West Point at the Thayer Hotel, and I told everybody, General Goodpaster is going to be one of the photos I put in that room because 
when I think about so early in my army career, which of course I didn't know I was going to have a career. I just, but when you look back, what a testimony of humble, authentic leadership. So yes, I know that that had a big impact on me. That's really cool. I love that. I always felt the same way at West Point in very different circumstances, but I always felt the same way that um, being treated like adults, being talked to like adults, that those, whether professors or tactical officers or anyone, that the more that they treated you like a lieutenant, that the more prepared you'd be. And it's interesting that you call that out because I always felt the same way that it's amazing what kind of responsibility that you have at the end of the journey, right? When you graduate, you're going to walk into all this responsibility. And I always thought it was so silly when people would be like, oh, it's just a cadet or it's just, you know, whatever. I'm like, what are you talking about? In three weeks, you're not. And uh, you got to grow up quick. And if you're not practicing being very responsible and being an adult, then you're definitely not going to act like one. True enough. And certainly there were many times throughout my four years as a cadet that I did not act like an adult. Okay. I was 18 to 22 and very much a kid, but I I think the difference is we were allowed to do some of that, you know, and of course acting out at West Point is quite different than acting out at any other college, right? I mean, wow, maybe you went down to use the telephone without permission. So our idea of being a bit rebellious at West Point is like nothing compared to a, a regular college, but we were also able to make mistakes learn from the mistakes, but learn from the mistakes in terms of understanding what it means by not leading by example. And we're going to be expected to lead by example when we get out there to be a lieutenant. And I think some of that forgiveness, even though it might have come with punishment, hours on the area or whatever, that it showed us or demonstrated to us that our soldiers are going to make mistakes too. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Figure out a way to develop them out of those bad behaviors and and tap into their potential, but don't just throw them away because they make a mistake. So I, I think I was very fortunate by the leadership that I saw at West Point at a very young age. Did you walk hours? I can't tell you that. I'd have to, you know, no, I, I you know, actually I did, you know, they'll say, I can't, if I tell you that I have to kill you. No, I actually, I did not walk hours, but I want to do the dot, dot, dot. That doesn't mean I, I shouldn't have walked hours. I have, so, I have no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I did sit some hours in my room. You know, if you're on certain teams, you could sit hours, sit some of the demerits off in your yep. room. But yeah. So the key there was if you're not real popular, they may not catch you doing things that you shouldn't be doing. I, my, I always feel sorry for my roommates. My roommates were star basketball players. So they're pretty easy to identify when they were out of line. Right. I love that. Um, Becky, just blending in the background. Trying. Obviously, you've made an incredible amount of firsts being a part of, as you mentioned, the early days of integrating women to the academy, being the first woman from all the service academies to be promoted to GO, commanding combat at a strategic level, chief of ordnance. Like, obviously, your career, you've had all these type of firsts. Did it feel like you were making history when that stuff was happening? No, not at all. And people can believe it or not believe it, but I wasn't paying attention to those things. I was very focused on doing my daily job the best I could do, leading my team the best that I could lead it. And then I was very competitive. I wanted my company to win the maintenance award and I wanted my guys and gals to do all that. So I was very competitive, but I wasn't competitive in the sense of, oh, this might get me, you know, name a first, okay? I specifically remember being a captain, a company commander at Fort Lewis. And probably my first, true mentor in the army outside of some of the West Point folks was my brigade commander. 
when I was a company commander. And I loved his leadership. He had a vision for his two years in command. He had priorities. And so there's a lot I liked about him. And I ended up writing my thesis about visionary leadership because of his example. But I remember him coming down to the companies and doing a battalion leader development. And he asked all the company commanders, how many of you uh, see yourself as being a general officer? One person raised their hand. And I remember being very shocked by the person who raised their hand because I thought, I can't believe they see themselves as that because I don't see them as that. That's for sure. But and I also thought, how could any captain see themselves as a general? That just blew my mind. And so that's when he said, you know, I'm going to give you some advice. And my advice is this. You always need to prepare for the future. You always need to be planning ahead. You always need to be learning and developing yourself as well as others. And he says, so try to think of it like this. Think two jobs out, one promotion up. Two jobs out, one promotion up. And from that day forward, I always carried a steno pad with me since West Point. And all my leader notes go in these steno pads, and I have every single one of them since West Point. But in the starting in that year, in the back of my steno pad, I started putting what I called O4 notes. Because you know, as a captain, you're an O3. So I said, okay, I'm going to listen to what he said. Think two jobs out, one promotion up. So in the back of my notebook became my O4 notes. And I started to watch majors and I thought, if I ever get to be a major, here's what I'm going to, I'm going to either not do or do. Cause I, you know, you see both when you're watching people. So if you look at my steno pads, some have 04, then I go to 05, 06. Now, even as an 06, I'm not so sure I ever wrote 07 notes. I'd have to go back and look at my notes. Cause just being a general, even at, even when I was an 06 and I already had been a brigade commander, I thought I would retire. I'm not so sure I really thought I would stay to do that. So I wasn't counting those first ever. Matter of fact, I didn't even know I was first to make colonel until someone sent me an email and I was in Germany and they had the list before I did. And they said, hey, congratulations, you're going to be the first woman graduate to make colonel. And I didn't even know I was being promoted to colonel. You know, I was like, oh, well, OK, whatever. that was an unusual promotion. That's when they used to have double below the zone for promotions and so I thought, well, maybe it's just a joke. So I was like, oh, thank you. And I was like, whatever. So it's just not something I tracked. So long answer to a short question. That's really interesting. And I think it's clear that, you know, you were focused on the 50 meter targets, right? It's like you worry about the 300 meter targets when they're a little closer to you because it seemed like uh, there was enough stuff going on that you needed to focus on the here and now. And I think whether you're in, on the civilian side or on the military side, I think so many people, we talk about this a lot, is this idea of connecting the dots, but you can't connect the dots until you make the dots and you yeah, have to make yeah. them, you know, Steve Jobs said that, not me, but you have to spend time like doing your best dot making. Like you said, being the best company commander, you can be having the best orderly room, you know, whatever, right. making sure that you're doing a great job right now and not focus with your head in the clouds. You know, and people would be like, isn't that exciting? And I would be, well, do you think it's exciting? I think it's a little scary, right? Especially uh, with an early promotion, because what I realize is that I'm going to take on responsibility with less experience as my peers in many cases. And so for me, it was, okay, I got to focus harder. I got to prepare harder because I don't have the same experience if I'm going into this promotion or this command earlier than my peers. And so I just took it as additional responsibility additional burden of responsibility. So that always kind of outweighed the excitement of it. And, and as I tell people, you know, the ceremony lasts an hour, the responsibility lasts a lot longer. So did I enjoy the moment? 
of course, I enjoyed the moment. I enjoyed the announcement. I enjoyed the ceremony. But then time to get to work. Yeah, sure thing, huh? I love that. You know, looking back on all this stuff now, do you feel like a trailblazer? You know, do you, as you've mentored other people, other women, I mean, is this something that like, you know, looking back that did you create a path that other people could follow? Or did you kind of make your own path and then say, hey, there's tons of other paths here that people can kind of pursue? Well, first of all, I always consider myself a role model for men and women because I consider myself a role model as a leader. I recognize that I am specifically a role model for women because they don't have many women at at these levels to look up to. And so I'm happy to be that role model, but I do think of it for everybody. I, I don't know that I still think of myself as a trailblazer. I let my parents enjoy that. You know, like, oh, you can feel good because you're my parents, right? I let my friends feel good about it, but it kind of makes me smile inside, but it isn't something that I need to talk about. Or, and when, like when people introduce me when I speak, they say, oh, your bio is so long. And I said, you know what? How about you do this? Why don't you just introduce me based on how you know me, you know, like, or how we met? Because it's the relationship that's more important to me than the achievement. Lots of people have long bios and lists of things, but it's the relationships that that actually matter. And I also recognize that in some cases, I was able to get these milestones because, you know, I was at the early entry of women into the, the opportunity. But there are women that went ahead of me, men that went ahead of me that helped open those doors. I remind people all the time that it was a male president that made the decision, we're going to open the academies to women. It was a male superintendent that says, we're going to do it professionally. I served for 27 years. I had 51 different bosses. They were all men. And I turned out okay. So (laughs) it's really about what's on the inside that matters. So even though I know I am a role model to women, it's just, it's always nice to see someone in your likeness and say, if they did it, I can do it, right? I think that's amazing. And I totally agree. I also think that it's really easy to look at like a list of achievements as like achievements and not dig into the details, which I'd like to do here now of some of the things that actually you did on the ground and the work that your teams did. You talked about, you know, just being a leader uh, and how much you enjoyed that. What were some of your proudest achievements? I know from a logistics standpoint, you were the tip of the spear on some extremely innovative stuff when globalization was becoming a, a much different animal. Logistics and distribution processes changing super rapidly. What were you the most proud of or a couple of things that you were most proud of? Well, I mean, certainly my year in Iraq, I tell people from 2005 to 2006, being in charge of logistics on the ground, you know, we had 20,000 military men and women in our organization. We had 5,000 civilians. We had over 3,000 Iraqi soldiers that were doing transportation units. That year is the highlight of my military career because of, you know, it's one year on the ground, but it's probably easily five years of knowledge, five years of advancement in technology. You're going 24-7. It's amazing how our military at that time was the greatest transformation since World War II. So to be leading that transformation effort in many ways, the way we were organized, the way we supported the fight, the way we tracked our supplies, you know, asset visibility, the way we did our inventories. You know, we went from just-in-time logistics to it's okay to have some inventory, but you're going to do it by class of supply based on the fight versus 
everything at a certain, you know, 30 days of supply because we don't want waste and all that. So it was very exciting to be part of that. And it really does play into globalization. You know, we were on a global team. We had a Polish military, we had Korean military, we had British military, we supported the Marines and the Army and the Air Force and Iraqi units. So it, I think it's just a wonderful case study on how you can very quickly put together a global team. I hadn't met any of my global peers, uh, general officers, so I was on the ground. So how do you quickly develop a relationship and teamwork and understand how they need to be supported? Because every one of them needs to be supported differently. So that's all very transferable to what I do today when I'm talking to the bigger industries and say, you know, wouldn't it be nice if all of our customers wanted it the same way? How much easier would it be to do your business? But they want it different ways and they want it packaged differently. They want it under different timelines. But I can tell you that the military training that I had as a logistician, there's none better. You know, when I mentioned my first mentor, right, when I was a young captain, if, if you had a 20-ton crane go down and the cranes were older than I was, right? We had old equipment. And that crane go down, he'd want to know what day did it go down? How long did it take you to order the part? How long is it going to mm-hmm. take to get the part in? When the part is in, how long is it going to take to fix and get it back to who needs it? So details matter. And we paid a lot of attention to that. And although technology is great, if the technology is not giving you those details, then the human dimension needs to give you those details. Because I don't know about you, but if I take my car in to be serviced somewhere and they can't talk to me about the eaches, the parts, the labor, the money, then I I don't have a lot of confidence in that uh, company. So I love taking what I learned in the military, sharing that with the corporate world and saying, the better you are at that, the more productive you're going to be as a company. So my highlight was probably Iraq. Hardest year of my life but most rewarding to see innovative, courageous soldiers figure out how to make things happen when we had not trained on it yet. We had equipment. First time we ever saw it was in Iraq. You know, that's when we were up armoring all the vehicles, right? So wearing equipment that we'd never worn before, but needed it to save lives. You know, things like 96% evacuation rate on the battlefield, medical evacuation. If we'd had those kind of rates in Vietnam, Can you imagine the difference in the outcome? And you talk to any soldier that survived an IED or an RPG or whatever, if they survived it to be able to go back and hug their family again, they were were way okay with an injury to do that versus to die on the battlefield because we weighed them fast enough or treat them and triage them fast enough. People don't understand. We'll bring a C-17 in for one soldier to save that one soldier's life and get them back to Germany and back to the States. So that's also in in its own way, very rewarding because that's how you keep soldiers inspired and motivated to go out the gate and take on the enemy because they know how hard we're working as leaders in the military to make sure that they get to go home. Yeah. I, I deployed as a brigade S1 in 2011 to Afghanistan and, uh, and I remember, I'll never forget it, when I was ripping with the old PS1. And uh, he's like, Ian, there are rubber balls and there are glass balls. And yeah. anything to do with casualty operations is a glass ball. Right. And I mean, those are the things that stick with you forever. But I, I think that people, to your point about casualty operations, is like that was something that was literally being rewritten that completely changed how that 
had ever been done in history. The way that our army takes care of that stuff is so detailed and so nuanced. And uh, having so many professionals from everyone, from transportation logistics and obviously all the medical piece to that, to dealing with all the different types of hospitals and, and Germany and all the personnel pieces with that. It's crazy stuff, like you said. And I can't even imagine back when 2005 to try to figure this out with a brand new war. Like I said, I'm not a big zero defect person. I grew up in the zero defect 80s. You know, you made a mistake, you're gone, you know, because that was an easy way to keep the yeah. sizing of the army. But when it comes to casualties, it is a zero defect because a family's only going to get that letter once. Yep. Their family's only going to get that call once. And yep. you can't get things wrong, you know. There wasn't a packet that went forward from me that I didn't read every piece of that packet because I know how hard it is at that lieutenant captain level. They don't have the same technology down there that I had at the general officer level. They do a handwritten note. You got to be able to read that handwritten note. But if you're using a yep. computer, you better not be cutting and pasting from the last letter that you wrote. General officers are given autograph machines, you know, so that an auto pen is what it's called. So if you're not available to sign something, it could be signed for you. And even though I was authorized that and I had one, I don't believe I ever used it. But if I did use it, it was only allowed to be used if an, like an award needed to be correct, right? And the you know, award was already approved. Yeah. Let's say there was a misspelling on the certificate or something, then it could be done. But on a letter, a personal letter that had to go to somebody, never, ever. You know, and I signed over 7,000 awards in Iraq alone. So you being an S1, you know what the, that's all about. 7,000 awards came through my office. Our brigade commander and brigade sergeant major, we sat there every week. We had our committee. We sat there signing, wet signing everything. Yeah. So you understand the magnitude of that. But a, a personal letter that's going to go to a family member, I signed them myself. If I can't take that time as a leader to do that, then shame on me. So that's just the way I felt about it. I'm curious, having seen the world as it is now, supply chain, the modern commercial industry, you know, Amazon being a completely different animal than back when it does was in 2005, FedEx, DHL, all that stuff. Obviously, we're, with everything going on in Ukraine and, and the pandemic and Ever Given and all these things, it seems like the world perhaps is rapidly changing. I mean, I guess it's always changing, but is in kind of this unique situation. I suppose, you know, back in 2005, also an extremely unique situation as well. But I'm curious, like any parallels uh, between then and now or lessons that you learned back then that apply to today? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I think, you know, details matter, right? And this whole concept of following up on things, you know, is very, very important in the distribution world, which is all those things you just named are, is all about order shift time, distribution. People order something, they'd like to know what the status is and they want to get it. And I think that we, we, the military, help them develop a lot of their good systems. And But people say, yeah, but you're not as good as FedEx. You're not as good as, as Amazon. I said, no. And here's the reason why. Because the address keeps changing. If you're out there and you're a company commander and you order something, but then you get told your mission just changed, you're going to move from Eastern Iraq to Western Iraq, and you're going to go on, you know, your address just changed. I, I would submit to you that the FedEx, DHL, and Amazon and all the rest of them, they don't have the problem with the address changing constantly. So that will never be quite that efficient, quite that effective. But we can share uh, a lot of our processes together. And I think that we did. I think that they learned a lot from us. Candidly, you know, when kids, I say kids, but when soldiers and leaders get out of the military and then they go and they, you know, I have a lot of friends that left the military as logisticians and they work for these companies. And that's a good thing right? Hire that veteran because they already have that up here. They already have the training and they can really help these companies 
do a better job at it. But I, I think the thing that's changed the most, Ian, is that the expectation of immediacy. If I order cat food on a, or dog food on, online, I'm kind of expecting it in 72 hours. And when I don't get it, I'm like, what is going on? So we have created this mentality that everything is instant. And not that's bad because the companies that can do it, great for them. But in the bigger strategic picture, when you look at supply chain and you think about all those ships out there with all those containers on it, they're all backed up and what we just went through with that. It bothers me immensely to hear a fairly high leader in our government say, well, we're not too concerned about once it opens up, the ships will come in and the containers will go out. And they're not too concerned about the priority of that. And that really raised the hair on the back of, on the back of my neck because as you may remember in Iraq, a lot of our supplies came through Turkey across the harbor gate up in the north. And the way it was, is kind of first come, first serve. If you're the first truck at the border, you're the next one that goes across the border. And when they would close that border, you could get two, three, 400 trucks backed up. I've got aerial pictures of hundreds of trucks backed up at the border because the little dispute, we decided to close the border. And the problem with that is as your supplies go down, the first 10 trucks might be, I don't know, you name a supply, not one I need. I need what's in truck 20 and 30 and 42. So it bothered me to hear that because if uh, we ought to be prioritizing supplies when we have a, a, a catastrophe like that, where they're all backed up. And if a mill van comes off, and it's got, what are we in now right now with the, the baby formula, right? It shouldn't all go to one store in one state in the country. We ought to be able to, in this day and age, have asset visibility in our country to make sure that certain communities are not being left out, that you're not a second-class citizen or second-class business. Anyhow, I could go on about that, but I think we have a lot more work to do. Yeah, no kidding. How are you uh, staying in the fight? Uh, obviously, you're doing speaking engagements. Uh, you have your company, Steadfast Leadership. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I'm a, a company of one, so don't be too impressed. You know, it's just me. I do very little consulting, but I do a little consulting. And then I'm uh, going to be serving on a board pretty soon. But most of my work is on speaking on leadership. So I'm somewhat of a plug and play for leadership conferences. I do a lot of work with Thayer Leadership right there at West Point. They're just a wonderful premier leadership organization. They bring in clients into West Point. They give them the uh, really the history of West Point, the be no do model. And then a lot of us that are retired come in and speak on leadership, teach on leadership. So that's been very exciting and rewarding. But I'm a plug and play in that regard to teach and people share, I'm a storyteller. So I tell people stories about the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's not just about success. It's about how I messed it up and you know how I failed and how I failed forward, as John Maxwell would say. And so to share those experiences to try to help other people on their own leadership journey. In what ways is West Point still a part of your life? How do you stay involved in the community? I'm sitting at West Point right now in a hotel room at the Thayer. So I come to West Point quite often with the Thayer leadership because we are right out right there at the gate. My personal staying in touch with West Point 
usually revolves around, um, I still know some of the folks on the faculty, cadets that I've, I maybe sponsored or, you know, I because I try to do a little bit of volunteer work. Like quite often, I'll, I'll go speak someplace. And I say, you know, I'm going to be there for a day and a half. So if you want me to go like speak at a high school or a college or something, you know, maybe we can, we could fit that in just a way to give back. And so it's been amazing to me how I found that kids who maybe heard me speak at their high school, then I'll get a text message or an email that says, hey, I decided to go to West Point. And so I'll meet them here for lunch or dinner and get the insight on what cadet life is like now versus when. So that's kind of how I do it. I'm not you know, super involved with my own community where I live because I travel all the time. But uh, a lot of parents reach out and say, you know, would you talk to my child about West Point, what their options are, what's the difference between ROTC and West Point? So a lot of one-on-one with that sort of like coaching just to see what the child might want to do by giving them a little bit of ex- my experience in that regard. I've had a chance to talk to the cadets a few times in different classes and all. And I talked to this uh, one group. It was really funny because I mentioned to this group that I was 2-0 and go when I was a cadet, 2.0 barely passed, but graduated in, on time. And when it was all over, this kid comes up to me and he says, General Halstead, you have given me hope. And I said, well, that's good. That leaders, that's what leaders do. Leaders create hope. And I said, how did I do that for you? He said, because you were 2.0 and go. And not only did you graduate, but you made general. And he says, you know, I'm struggling academically, but you've given me hope. So I was like, hey, touchdown, that works. What's your secret then? Because clearly, if grades don't matter that much, you got to figure out a way to graduate. But after that, what was your secret to an illustrious career? I don't think anybody's ever asked that quite that way of me. The secret sauce is if you're a person who truly cares about other people and authentically, humbly care about other people, and you truly believe that, you know, define your success by how you help other people be successful, then I, I think that's pretty huge because when I think back to the teams that I was on, people that worked for me or peers or even my bosses, most of the folks that worked for me would say, I was one of the hardest bosses they ever worked for. You know, I was very demanding, but I was never demeaning. And I think it's okay to be demanding. I tell them, I'm not, I never apologize for high standards. High standards are going to keep us alive. For a business, high standards are going to keep you competitive, are going to keep you above the line and profit. And if you take care of your people, we've had, we, we do have a huge divide between what the top leadership of companies make and what the person on the factory floor makes. And I think just like in the military, I was always an advocate for tightening that gap because I never felt like I was more important than my soldiers. Did I have more responsibility? Yes. Was I more important? No, not more important. Just had more responsibility. So we do pay for that responsibility and, the, and, the, and there should be a difference, but that gap could be closed. But anyhow, I think maybe the secret sauce is truly caring about them, their families, their lives, their future, and then telling it like it is. You know, if you have someone that truly uh, doesn't have the potential, you better have the intestinal fortitude to, to tell them that and certainly try to help develop them. And then if it, they can't be developed, then it's time to let them go. Because when you don't do that, you breed mediocrity. And I don't want to be on a mediocre team. There's too many really strong people out there that 
can make a difference. Yeah, there's a great adage of, I forget who said this, a famous entrepreneur where it's like, I'm not trying to make as much money for myself. I'm trying to make all the people in my company millionaires, how many millionaires I can make. And I think I always thought of that as an interesting way of like the military parallel, where if you're the battalion commander or the company commander who's worried about them being top block or being double BZ or all that sort of stuff versus... I want to get all of my company commanders to be double BZ, or I want to get all my platoon leaders to be the top. And that's a big difference, right? Is like getting your people successful rather than where like if if they're all doing a great job, like your career is going to be just fine if they're all succeeding. And I think it's a great lesson. And you should be comfortable wanting to surround yourself with really good people. I mean, I worked for some bosses who they were intimidated by other people that were good. And I'm like, I pray to be surrounded by great people, right? I'm not intimidated by other people being better, smarter, faster than me. I I want them on my team. But I also want people on my team that think differently. I don't want my team to look just like me. And I had a great boss who said to me, don't surround yourself with little Becky Halsteads. I was like, what's wrong with little Becky Halstead, sir? And he says, you think about it, you'll figure it out. And then I did because, you know, if I were to just choose all women to work for me and all white women to work for me, then I wouldn't get the diversity of thought and experience and culture and all the rest of that. So it's like, no, pick people who think differently than me to surround me, to to challenge my thinking, to challenge our way ahead, you know? And then I have to be wise enough and smart enough to discern what's best if I'm the one that's in charge to move us forward. I want to see people succeed. See, the greatest joy of leading is leaving a legacy. And you can't leave a legacy if you're not investing your time and your energy into other people. So often people say, what was your greatest accomplishment? I don't know what they're expecting me to say. Probably some first that I don't even know about. But no, the greatest joy for me is leaving a legacy. And I don't even really know who they all are. I just know that I invested a lot of time and energy in people. And sometimes I'm surprised when I hear from someone and then they remember something that I don't remember, but I'm glad it happened. I'm not counting. I'm not counting how many people I mentored and I'm not counting how many people were successful, but I'm going to invest in you so that we can get the best version of you, whether it's for the military or for civilian sector. I just want to pull the best out of every person. The biggest transition for me from being a leader in the army and being a leader in the civilian world was when I was in the army, someone else picked my team. It was like, whatever your soldiers, whoever came into those wrecks, that was that E7, that's your NCOIC. Boom, that's it. You don't get another E7. In the civilian world, you get to pick your team. Every single player can be an A player if you want, if you can pay them, right? That was always been a a really challenging thing for me was you get a C player and that army part of you is like, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that this person is an A player. As we all know, like sometimes that just isn't how it works. Like sometimes you can get a C player to a B, but you can't get them to an A. And if you're trying to run a high performing organization, sometimes that just isn't going to cut it. And that was for me, one of the most challenging things. I I still deal with that of just trying to surround yourself with the absolute most talented people possible. Yeah. And that is challenging, especially if you're the one who uh, championed that person and you're the one who hired that person. I mean, I've had people come up to me afterwards after I speak and they say, how do you know when it's time to fire? And I would lean into them and say, you already know. I don't know what you're asking me that for. And again, clearly they they were in a situation where they knew they needed to fire somebody, but they didn't want to do it. And then I had another person come up to me once and said, you know, I have a real dilemma because I championed Becky 
And I convinced the boss that Becky should be advanced and promoted. Now we've advanced and promoted Becky and she wasn't ready. What do I do? And I said, well, since you were part of the equation, I said, I would at least go back and try to figure out, is there anything available to you to help speed Becky up, right? Like, is there some extra training? Is there some OJT? I mean, you got to make every effort you can because you set Becky up in this position. And then if it doesn't work, maybe you go to a lateral or something, but you have to take responsibility because you were out there championing it. And I said, and it, it teach yourself a lesson in the future that just because you really like someone doesn't mean they're necessarily ready for that next job. And I talk a lot to people about, I think the army gets this right. We look at performance and we look at potential. So often in the corporate world, what I see is they just look at performance and they tend not to look at potential. But if you ignore potential, there is a tendency to put people into higher positions of responsibility that they're not ready for. You're so right. It's funny. I always feel the opposite. I always feel like everyone I hire is on just potential. Yeah, I'm interested in what they've done and I'm interested in hearing how they did it. But I always like that is my I'm like, I'm like, I this person could be like with this and build this skill set and whatever. And then, you know, like that's I'm all, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm just an optimist. I don't know. We do have to consider that potential piece because it's John Maxwell that said your success ended at midnight last night. I mean, you know, so don't live on what you accomplished yesterday. And so I think that's a great mentality to have. And, and I share that with people because don't promote on that. Promote on what you think they, they're capable of doing. Becky, it's been so wonderful chatting with you. Before we get out of here, you did write a book. Can you tell us a little bit about your book? Well, the name of the book is 24-7, The First Person You Must Lead Is You. So as I entered into the world of speaking, after I would speak, people would come up to me and say, please tell me you've written a book. And I, for about three years, would say, no, I got an outline, but I haven't written one. I'm thinking about it. And I think it's they would ask me that because, again, I'm a storyteller. So they wanted to go deeper. They wanted more stories, more principles, and then deeper than you can go in 45 minutes to an hour in a keynote. So I had kind of, uh, I was speaking in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, and it, it just came to me that this is something I need to do in order to kind of deepen the relationship with the people that I speak with. And I didn't want somebody else writing it. I, so I wrote it myself. I authored it myself and published it on Amazon as self-published. So, you know, it's never going to be a New York Times bestseller. That's not what I was looking for. I'm like, truly, I don't need something else underneath my signature block. But I want it to be real. And I want it to capture the things that I learned from my military career and make them applicable to people that are trying to lead themselves and others in the civilian sector. And the reason why I did the first person you must lead is you is because as West Point teaches us, the be no do model, we need to lead by example. And we cannot ask of others to do something we're not willing to do ourselves. And I think so many people think of themselves as not a leader because nobody works for them. And I'm like, every single person sitting in a seat in front of me is a leader because you have at least one person to lead and that's yourself. And so just from a, strategic perspective, I just think we would be better as a nation. We would be better as a world if more people would understand that leading themselves and leading themselves with values and making the hard choices and doing what's right, we would have a much better society. And so I just felt like that was the focus that I needed to have. And it's been a lot of fun putting it out there when I speak. and But that's why I wrote it. I couldn't agree more. Becky, it's been wonderful having you on the show. 
Thanks, Ian, for joining. Thanks to West Point AOG for putting this all together. Any final thoughts? Well, I guess the final thought I would say is because the Association of Graduates is putting this on, is that West Point was the hardest four years of my life and most transformative years of my life. But I tell everybody, no regrets. I wouldn't want to do it twice, but I'm sure glad I did it once. And I would encourage other folks to do it as well if that's what they think they want to do, if they want to serve, if they want to serve their nation and through that lead for their nation and be part of an amazing, amazing team. I'm very proud of what AOG does to help keep West Point as a very premier and elite school that kids will want to go there. I'm definitely very proud to be part of that. So hope that my example can help others see that. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you. This has been a production of the WPAOG Broadcast Network. Please take a moment to rate and review the show and join us each week for a new episode. Thank you for listening.